Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we gather here this morning, Lord, I pray that this morning that you'll hide me behind your cross, me away from I pray that you'll I give me the words to speak as I bring forth your word, and, and that of all my parents were very disappointed, you, Lord, that this People morning didn't want to be around your name may like, be exalted in this building. Lord, we give you great thanks for the progress that we've been given and the opportunities we've given as we study your word, Lord. Thank you for those who are laboring here and giving of their time here for your glory. We give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus. Amen. We've been working through the book of John, and as we've returned time after time, we have stated that John has set out to remind us in this gospel that his desire is to bring to the hearer and the reader the understanding that Jesus is the Christ, that he's not only the Christ, but he is the Son of God, and that believing ye might have eternal life through him. But here in verses 15 through 18, we've kind of what is often called the prologue. This is the end of John's introduction to this gospel. This is to say that we've reached the end of what the, the introduction of what John has set out to declare before us. We've already seen as we've worked through the first 14 verses that John has declared that not only is Jesus the Christ, not only is the, the Son of God, but He is the pre-existent Word. Before time and space and matter, there was the Lord. He existed there and dwelt with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Not only is He set out to do that, but even further to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, He pauses in His explanation of who Christ is to explain to us that John the Baptist is the long-awaited prophet that was prophesied of old in the Old Testament. Even more, after all of this, he tells us of John the Baptist's message as he arrived on the scene. I couldn't imagine what that was like in the life of Israel. After 400 years of silence, 400 years of not hearing a word from the Lord, coming on the scene with John the Baptist with boldness, preaching the truth of God's Word. I consider verses 15 through 18 as sort of the theological approach of what John's testimony was of who Jesus Christ is. We'll see as you move forward in the John chapter 1 that in verses 19, and 28, 19 through 28, we'll see that, they that G John the Baptist will deny that he is the Christ. But even more, in verses 29 and on, we'll see that great message that John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. But here in verses 15 through 18, we kind of get a, sneak peek of just who exactly John the Baptist views who Jesus is. 
Verse number 15, our text says, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. This is he of whom I spake. I mean, really, just imagine the scene that's before us. As John is bearing witness, as John is lifting up Jesus the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah, as he's bearing witness of him, John catches a glimpse of Jesus before him. And he says, this is the one of whom I bear witness. This is the one of whom I speak. But there is a word of intensity added here. It is to bring us to the understanding of the, the passion and the, and the feeling that John had in his heart as he was heralding this truth. It says, John bear witness of him and cried, saying, I mean, uh, really put yourself in this place. I mean, even in our own lives, after all this time of John the Baptist exhausting himself, preaching God's word, magnifying the fact, the name of Christ and that Christ had come and that he was here to seek and to save that which is lost. After exhausting himself amongst the people, he finally lays his eyes upon Christ. I can only imagine how loud he cried and, and how he cried. I can't even begin to fathom how it will be that Day, one day, after all of these Sunday services, after all of these Wednesday services, after all these times we share the gospel with others, I can't imagine what I'm going to be like the day when I say, finally I see my Savior face to face. This is the one who I preached of. This is the one whom I spake of. This is the one whom I told people about. Behold the Lamb of God that took away my sins in this wicked world. I can imagine that I too will probably be lifted and cry aloud. The, the passion, the moment that John in this life laid his eyes upon Jesus. I don't know about you, but there have been times in the study closet, in the prayer room where I have caught just but a glimpse of him in my heart and it has moved me to tears but to lay eyes on the fullness of God in the flesh was moving John bare witness of him and cried saying this was he of whom I spake I long for the day that I cross over and see him face to face. But here, John bear witness of him and cried. To bear witness means to testify. It means to herald. But scripture says that he cried. Now understand that when he says that he cried, it doesn't mean that John just wept tears. It means so much more than that. Matter of fact, in Koine Greek, the word cried comes from the Greek word krazo, which is always used to refer to the croaking of a raven. 
Now, I know that you're thinking, what in the world would John be using this? But let me tell you, when me and my family traveled out west, we got this beautiful campsite. I mean, it was just absolutely gorgeous. The next morning we got up, laughing already because I was going insane. But we looked over this beautiful, crystal, clear lake. I got my coffee and I slipped out there and was sitting down in my chair and she would soon come out. And lo and behold, these ravens was above us. And they began to croak so loud that it had began to drown out me and my wife's conversation that we was having. They literally drove me mad. But this is exactly what John did. As the crowd gathered together, there was a voice from the midst of the crowd that had drowned out all of the useless conversation. In the midst of the crowd, there was a voice that was lifted up, and it was not magnifying his own name. There in the midst of the crowd, John the Baptist was exalting the name of Jesus Christ, magnifying him as Lord and Savior. It drowned out all which was around him. It was all that could hear what John was doing. John bare witness of him and cried, this is he, this was he of whom I spake. John cried aloud. With John testified with power. He testified with passion. His voice was heard above all. And it was not to bring praise to himself, but understand John the Baptist's theological standpoint. When John had the crowd around him, he exalted the superiority of Jesus Christ. Well, John, look around. Everybody's following you. Yeah, but listen, I'm nobody. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is what John's point of view was about his ministry. And by the way, that's exactly what a good preacher does. That's what a great preacher does. They, they tell the world that there is no hope outside of Jesus. There is no help outside of Jesus. There is no peace outside of Jesus. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. And we conclude the matter with there is absolutely no one else like Jesus. John the Baptist set out to explain that Jesus Christ is superior in every way to him. Look what he says. John bear witness of him in Christ, saying that this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, he goes on to further explain that the reason that there is no one else like Jesus is because he has a great understanding of whom Jesus is. Notice our verse. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. Now let's not miss what John is saying here when he makes that statement alone. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. One brother did well in pointing to the fact that we must first, un before we can understand this statement as a whole, insert yourself 
into the Jewish society of this day. Now, this is going to be estranged to us because we live in such a disrespectful generation. We live in a generation that does not honor their elders and doesn't pay respect to their elders. And how can you do that or believe that? They don't even pay respect to their own parents. But in the generation in which John entered the world, it was a honor society. Let me explain this. It means that if someone was older than you, you paid honor to them. You respected them because it was to be viewed that they had more wisdom than you, that they had more experience than you. Respect to elders, if you go back and read the Old Testament, it was so serious amongst the Jews that if you dishonored or disrespected, you could end up being stoned to death. It was a serious matter. But here, John is saying, while I understand what society has to say. Now, we understand that John the Baptist was physically older than Jesus Christ. John says that he that cometh after me is preferred. This means to be ranked. This means to be honored. This means to be lifted up. And in the honor society, this was different to the ears of the hearer. What do you mean that he is preferred before you? John confesses that, yes, I was born from before Jesus in physical terms, but I would, I would never be viewed as his elder because he ranked higher than me. And the reason that he is made higher than me is because John recognized that Jesus was the Christ. He was the king. He is the king. He is the Messiah. But even more to this, John says that the one who, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, he that cometh after me is ranked higher than me positionally because he literally is the king of kings. But let me tell you even more. Paul, John says, if I was to address this on a matter of age like you're thinking, let me add further clarity to the matter. He that cometh after me is preferred ranked before me. But then he goes on to say, for he was before. Not only did John recognize that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the king, that he was the Messiah, but he also recognized the eternality of the word. He recognized that Jesus was the son of God. John, wait a minute, John. Jesus was born after you. Yeah, he may have physically been born into flesh, according to verse 14, the incarnation of the word. He may have been physically born after me, but he has always existed before me. Even more, this is not just a side statement, but this is a statement of John's faith. He is preferred before me, for he was before me. There is the confession that he was before him because he is eternal in the word. He believed him to be God in the flesh. But he has more to say about just exactly whom Jesus is. Verse 16. And of his fullness, Christ here, and of Christ's fullness, have we all received 
and grace for grace. Now, there is much debate about the avenues that you could go in fully explaining this verse. But I believe this verse to be a personal testimony in John's life that in the fullness of Christ, we have, because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ did for us, understand that the time of John's writing, Christ was already back in heaven. Because of what Christ has done, we have all received grace for grace. John says we have received grace literally heaped on top of grace. It is just, uh, this is the unmerited favor of God. John says, I have experienced grace more than just the day I was saved, but I have continued to experience grace. I mean, how many days go by where we recognize that we're sinners saved by grace, and yet we still struggle, and yet our gracious Father continues to deal graciously with us. He said, grace upon grace. John is trying to paint for us a portrait of an inexhaustible stream that flows from the cross. This stream that flows, pours out grace upon grace. There is so much grace in the fullness of Jesus Christ that a hot summer sun could not evaporate the grace. There is so much grace in Jesus Christ, that a drought could not deplete it. Matter of fact, if all of humanity in a hot summer day, in the midst of a drought, drank from the grace that flowed from our Lord and Savior, they would not even drop the water but a centimeter. Grace upon grace flows from the person of Jesus Christ. As I thought about this, I began to tried to grasp a hold about what Ezekiel had to say as he seen that stream flow from the throne room of grace. Ezekiel said, he said, I, I went out a thousand cubits and it was up to my knees. He said, I, I went out another thousand cubits and it was up to my waist. He said, I, I went out another thousand cubits and it was so deep that I could not pass. That is how I view what John is trying to express and explain to us that we have received grace for grace, grace upon grace, unmerited favor from God. But more about this grace, he says, verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What a passage. Now, let me explain it to you like this. Get a hold of it. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Once when I was a boiler maker for Smithfield Foods, they gave me the task of rebuilding Worthington pumps. And I rebuilt the Worthington pump the same exact way. I took it apart, and within a couple of weeks, the pump would fail again. The bearings would crash out of it. I took it apart, rebuilt it the same way that I took it apart. And it was an ongoing cycle until finally my supervisor gave me the manual. 
and when I looked at the manual, I recognized that there was two oil circuits that was supposed to go in the housing of the pump that flung oil onto the bearings while it ran, while it ran. Well, I rebuilt it that way and the pump lasted. You see, because I got the manual, I was able to see that something was wrong with what I was doing with the pump. He says here, in, this is grace upon grace, for the law was given by Moses. This is a grace moment. The law is good. The law is, the law is not bad. The law is good. Why is the law good? We read the Ten Commandments and we say, this is terrible, I fail. Yes, but it's good. Why? Because it was an act of grace from God. Why? Because it brought us to the understanding that we were in desperate need of something else to deliver us from the situation we was in. So we had the law. We recognized we could not keep it. And yet, it was a grace moment that God would even unveil to us that there's something wrong to us, but then he not only gave to us what he required for us to be made right with him. And that's what he says. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This was a, a, a moment of the outpouring of God's great grace. He has been a gracious God all throughout history. We don't hate the law. We love the law because it makes us understand our need of Christ. Even more, he says, verse number 18, no man hath seen God any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, I, I admit that if you take that verse in a quick reading and a quick passing, it can kind of be confusing here. But remember, context, context, context. This is the end of a prologue. This is the end of John's introduction to this great gospel so what he's saying here is, no man has seen God at any time. Fine, we'll start there. We have a complete understanding of this, that no man hath seen God. In the Old Testament, God had manifested himself in a form of a cloud. He made himself a cloud of fire by night. He manifested himself there in the burning bush. But understand that what he's, John is saying is that no man has ever seen God in his fullness. No one has ever seen him in his, uh, in his full nature. No one has able, ever been able to visually take in God's divine nature. Matter of fact, when Moses asked in the Old Testament to see God, to see his glory, God would take Moses and tuck him into the, left, uh, the cleft of the rock and allow him to see his hinder parts and just the hinder parts. When Moses came down from the mountain, people were panicking and afraid because his 
face did glow. They had to tell Moses, Moses, you're, you're freaking the people out. We need you to wrap, a, 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 wrap something around his face to, to hide his face from glowing. He had been with the Lord. No man has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Though no one has ever seen God, John further says, but let me tell you about something about Jesus. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, John says that at the time of this writing, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. This is, a, this is a present statement that John is writing here. He's saying, no man has ever seen God. And in this very moment, the only begotten Son is back. And when he says in the bosom of the Father, it is to say that he is with God the Father sitting at his right hand. At the time of this writing, John says this same word, the same word that became flesh in this very moment, he didn't die in a borrowed tomb. He rose again the third day and he ascended upon high and is currently sitting in heaven with our heavenly father. But he says more. And he, he hath declared him. Now, this statement here is to say, he hath declared him. It is to say, God hath declared him, Christ. God declared himself in Jesus. Though we understand that no one has ever seen God, the Father, we understand that God the Father has been declared in the image of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now explain this to you. I can't. I can tell you this. You need to really see this. They wasn't just worshiping Jesus' words. They worshipped him because he was the image of God. In him, this mere mortal flesh could not hide his divinity and who he was. Even more, he was the image of the invisible God, so much to the point that when Jesus Christ had resurrected from the dead, he stood there before Thomas. The Bible says that Thomas fell down and worshipped him. If he was not the image of the invisible God, this would have been idolatry and it had been condemned. But it wasn't. Because no man has seen God, but God hath declared himself. In Christ, we have gained who Christ is, or through who the invisible uh, God in Christ. Remember, in I think it's Matthew chapter eleven. I think we'll even come there in John chapter eight, if we live that long. But there in John chapter eight, it says that they asked Jesus. The disciples asked 
to see the Father. And what did he tell them? He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now further dissect that and explain it. You're just going to have to ask him when you get there. But he is the image of the invisible God, and God hath declared his deity in Christ. Even more, we understand there's, there's two ways to, and this is a word that you can hear when you, when you study and read um, other books about the word of God. There's two ways to, um, to come to an understanding of the word of God. One is proper, one is improper. To eisegesis a text means to go into a text and you have a preconceived idea of what you want the text to say. That's eisegesis. That's terrible. That's a bad way to go. Exegesis is the right way to go. We go in, we study the text, and we take for the context of the text and what the writer and the Holy Spirit is trying to convey to us, and we take that out of the text and apply it to our lives. Now, I, I love this. This word, exegesis, means that when we exegete, it means that we have the ability to abstract from a text and apply it to our lives. We have the ability to understand this because we read the word. That word exegete, or exe, uh, yeah, exegete, we'll just say that, is uh, exegesis, but the, the, that word, that we have in the English comes from this very word declared in the Greek. So what is John trying to tell us? That he's trying to draw, drive home really that we have no ability to explain who God the Father is because we've never seen it. But in the person of Jesus Christ, he has manifested himself unto us, and Jesus can declare whom God the Father is to us because he has seen him, and we have not. He is able to, it is to say, John says, Take these words that Christ has given to us and declared to us about whom the God the Father is because only Christ has seen God the Father. Only Christ knows God the Father. No man knows God the Father. The only one who knows God the Father is God the Son. Only Jesus can declare whom God the Father is. So he closes this prologue, this entry, this introduction to what we're beginning to, Lord willing, embark upon as we try to understand the book of John. He, he closes this prologue, but just remember these last several parts, because this is the entirety of John's heart for us to understand and that we can really understand who Jesus is. One, verse number one, he wants you to understand that Jesus Christ is the pre-existent word, and before time, space, and matter, he dwelt with God the Father in perfect unity. They were equal. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's what Philippians says. Even more, 
verse 14, that same God, Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the Logos, who dwelt with God the Father, left his throne in glory, entered humanity, and took on flesh. That's what verse number 14 says. And even more, what we've seen in verse number 17, that what happened here, look at, and the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Though we understand, we start to see that in the Old Testament, the gospel was veiled. In the New Testament, it was unveiled, and it was unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ. So he wants us to get, not only did Christ exist before the foundations of the world, not only did he become flesh, but in him was the full expression of grace and truth unveiled to us. In him there is nothing else hid. We see the entirety of what God is doing for his people in him. Even more, verse number 18, which we just looked at, that in Christ, God has been exegeted to us. God has been declared to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when he comes to the close of all of this, we'll even fuller, more fully understand that this is the basis for every narrative, for every miracle, for every interaction from this moment forward. Many commentators will set out to say that John in the beginning sets out with stating there were two witnesses. John the Apostle and John the Baptist. And the reason he set out to do that was even for further confirmation because in that day, nothing was confirmed or believed unless it came from two witnesses. So many believe that's why in these first 18 verses, the statement is given in this manner. We see John the Baptist sermon is going to come on later for us. The, the actual sermon when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. But first, he abstracts John the Baptist away from the sermon to give us a theological statement. And listen, even for us today, we can't just say, Well, we believe Jesus Christ is a miracle worker and Jesus Christ is a hero, and Jesus Christ is, you know, he's the Savior. It, 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 them are easy words. We must extract ourselves from the things that people say and begin to ask ourselves, who is Jesus to us? Do you believe it? Do you believe that before this world came into existence, Christ existed, and that he left his throne in glory to enter humanity for wretched sinners like me. And he would die on Calvary. Not know some slew theory where he was alive and he was barely breathing and he came. He died. I mean, he really died. And rose again three days later, victorious, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Do you believe that he did all of that for you? 
I don't want to, I don't want you to leave out of here saying, I believe he did it. I want you to leave here saying, I believe he did it for me. He's, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thy heart that God, what, hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity here to be in your house, to, to study your word, to, to read your word, Lord, and I pray that we leave here applying your word, Lord. And I pray that you'll give us the strength to understand and, and not forget the main purpose as we begin to work through this gospel. What is the, the main purpose that you're trying to drive home to your children? We give thanks to you for all that you've done, Lord. Be with those who are not able to be here with us this morning, Lord. Uh, I pray that for those who are traveling, that you'll give them safe travels. For those who are sick, that you'll put your healing hand upon them. And Lord, for all those who gather here, I pray that we leave here richly blessed. Not because of me, but because of who you are and we spent time with you. We give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.